If we make the right investments, we won't need to live in fear of another COVID. We can build a health system that is ready to stop outbreaks before they go global. Here's how it should work. Epidemiologists will detect suspicious clusters of a disease that could cause a pandemic. A global team of 3,000 disease experts managed by the WHO called the Germ Team will track the disease and share data and recommendations with governments. Governments and pharmaceutical companies will work together to use factories all over the world to get an unprecedented scale of diagnostics and vaccines very quickly. We'll have an agreed protocol and we'll understand how to share the results globally. Countries and the WHO will work in the best way to allocate these tools and to make sure that we have the logistics and delivery to get them to everyone who needs them. The key to be ready for a potential pandemic is to practice. And so this germ team will work with each country to do germ games, drills where you see, are you ready? Could you get the diagnostics out? So we're ready to go when we see the outbreak. Diseases are always going to spread among humans, but they don't have to become pandemics. You can read more about this in my new book, How to Prevent the Next Pandemic. Yes, just when you thought you had gotten rid of him, like a canker sore in the mouth of humanity, Bill Gates pops up yet again to continue doing what he does. Welcome to the Corbett Report. I am your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, coming to you on the 10th of May 2022 with episode 418 of the Corbett Report podcast. I read Bill Gates' new book, so you don't have to. <laughs> oh, that's right. I have subjected myself to How to Prevent the Next Pandemic by Bill Gates. So don't ever say that I don't do nice things for you guys out there. But having said that, I suppose I've done it to myself by creating the Who is Bill Gates documentary. I feel, if not obligated, I at least feel somewhat compelled to, to denounce the latest spewings from the mouth of Bill Gates. And I guess... I've already subjected myself to way, 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 way more of that nasally Kermit the voice, Kermit the Frog voice than any human being should have to, so I'll just continue bearing the punishment for you guys out there. All right, having said that, so the groundwork for today's episode, very much like my recent uh, expose of I Read the Great Narrative, so you don't have to, uh, once again, I'm going to go through this book in some degree of detail, so... Uh, as, and as I always say, but I'll say it here again as well, I am not actually dissuading anyone from reading anything. Please do read it for yourself if you are so inclined and you have the time. Um, please find a way to do so that does not involve lining the pockets of Bill Gates. But at any rate, um, if you feel compelled to read it, go and read it. Don't let anyone dissuade you from that. But if you don't want to invest, invest the time in that, I'll go through this for you. So yes, as you might have noticed from all of the publicity and PR that Bill Gates has been doing for this book, including multiple interviews with multiple outlets and and the usual uh, suspects like CFR Insider, Globalist Extraordinaire Fareed Zakaria, and others, yes, Bill Gates has written a new book on how to prevent 
the next pandemic, because of course, as he's been talking about this entire time, throughout this entire generated crisis, since the very beginning of the scandemic, oh, you guys won't be laughing when it gets to pandemic two, pandemic capital I, capital I, like World War II. Our parents' generation had to live through World War I and World War II, but we're going to live through pandemic one and pandemic two. And how do I know this? Well, anyway, <laughs> you'll notice it next time. So yes, he's written an entire book t kindly deeming to inform the masses, the masses of asses, what they can do to better worship at the foot of Bill Gates. Now I will attempt to keep the ad hominem and sarcasm and what have you down, or at least, if not to a minimum, at least somewhat tamped it down in this episode, because you didn't come here to listen to me denigrating and making fun of Bill Gates. You know my opinion of Gates, and more importantly, you have a lot of information about Gates from who is Bill Gates, or from my fact check on polio vaccines and, uh, and Bill Gates and uh, all of these sorts of things that I've done in the past. So I will, of course, put those in the show notes so that you can go and explore them further if you are new to all this, which there are always new people in the audience, so perhaps you do need to be brought up to speed. How could anyone dislike that so kind, multi-billionaire philanthropist who's generously giving away his wealth even though his wealth doubled during the generated crisis of the scandemic? Yada yada. Okay, so actually, let's just get straight into this. So, uh... First of all, for uh, this is going to go through step by chapter by chapter everything that Gates is talking about. So it's going to be a usual corporate report, long deep dive. If you just want cut to the chase, just tell me and I'm going to get out of here. Here is the long and short of it. This is a ridiculous book. I genuinely do not recommend it on any grounds, even from the perspective of I want to know more about the propaganda or I want to analyze this for what it might tell. No, there is nothing of that value in here. There's certainly nothing of any scientific or medical value in here. There's nothing even interesting here. There's nothing that you wouldn't have gleaned from a million mainstream sources if you were following mainstream sources for the last couple of years. It's a baffling book even from a propagandistic perspective. So I'll I'll summarize that at the end, just what I think, who is the actual intended audience of this book, and what's it for, and what's a better book to read than this one. We'll get into that uh, after all of that, but just cut to the chase. Is this recommendable? Absolutely not. What would you give it on a scale of 0 to 10? 0. <laughs> and I'm not even saying that as a Gates hater, blah, blah, from some, you know, predetermined perspective. I mean, genuinely, as a book, it's just bafflingly stupid. I have no idea who he's actually hoping to sell this to. But anyway, moving right along. Let's go to the introduction. First, the dedication, where he does note that author proceeds for this book, he's generously donating all the author proceeds to Partners in Health, which is an organization I which was not ringing a bell with me. I did look it up, and on their about page, they do claim to be a social justice organization that responds to the most imper the moral imperative to provide high-quality health care globally to those who need it most. So I'll put the link into their website so that you can judge whether or not you deem that to be an accurate assessment of this organization. And here's the other selling point for this book for people who are interested in the audiobook version of this book. Gates reads the introduction to the audiobook, but the meat and potatoes of the book is read by TV's Wesley Crusher. That's right, Will Wheaton himself. You mean Will Wheaton? Yes, Will Wheaton. Why are you saying it like that? <laughs> is actually narrating the audiobook. Shut up, Wesley. All right, so 
That aside, let's get into the introduction to the book where he, uh, Gates, starts by talking about how he uh, learned about COVID-19 and how it was going to be a global disaster at a dinner meeting that he had convened at his home in Seattle, or at his office in Seattle, I should say. And then he gives a brief history of how he came to be interested in public health. He was reading a New York Times article by Nicholas Kristof back in 1997 about how uh, uh, diarrhea was killing 3 million people a year, mostly children. And he turned to Melinda, how can this be? How can this be happening? And they started reading up on infectious diseases and becoming interested in public health, blah, blah, blah. So... Um, Anyway, then he jump cuts to the foundation and criticisms about the foundation and says, you know, our foundation is accused of only being about rich people diseases, but we care about the poor brown people too. Um, then he's talking about how pandemics uh, are going to get worse in the future because of global travel, which is, parenthetically, I'll note, a point that is specifically refuted by uh, Sunetra Gupta. So I'll throw in a link explaining a little bit about that. Um, he was alarmed by the WHO report on the 2009 swine flu scamdemic, that corporate report uh, listeners will definitely know about by now if you've been listening to my work on that subject. The world is ill-prepared to respond to a severe influenza, influenza pandemic. And so he began his focus on the pandemic threat, um, which of course was exacerbated by the 2014 Ebola scamdemic, which Gates did have his own part in. Um, certainly in writing for the uh, New England Journal of Medicine about about Ebola and the, the threat of global pandemics and blah, blah, blah. And of course, the infamous TED Talk and yada, yada. Then he gets more in-depth into the common criticisms of the foundation. Bill Gates is an unelected billionaire with too much influence and too much reliance on private sector uh, companies and technology. And his response is essentially, yeah, guilty as charged. Um, my wealth has largely insulated me from the impact of COVID. He says specifically, and what's more, I agree, it's not good for society when rich people have undue influence, dot, 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 but the foundation isn't about a secret agenda. It's very open with its agenda, so it's okay. <laughs> also, yeah, I'm a technophile. <laughs> okay, all right, an interesting response. Um, he's just in, essentially attempting to front run the criticism, but then he, he differentiates those valid concerns from the concerns of those crazy conspiracy theorists. Unfortunately, not every criticism of me is as thoughtful. Throughout COVID, I've marveled at how I became the target of wild conspiracy theories. It's not an entirely new sensation. Nutty ideas about Microsoft have been around for decades, but the attacks are more intense now. I have never known whether to engage with them or not. If I ignore them, they keep spreading. But does it actually persuade anyone who buys into these ideas if I go out and say, I am not interested in tracking your movements. I honestly don't care where you're going, and there is no movement tracker in any vaccine. I've decided that the best way forward is to just keep doing the work and believe that the truth will outlive the lies. Oh, what a surprise. Color me shocked. Bill Gates uses a stupid straw man argument to dismiss any actual substantive criticism that would actually question his true motivations or what he's really 
attempting to accomplish in uh, forwarding the biosecurity agenda. Oh yes, it's all about these bark-raving lunatics who just think that Bill Gates is sitting there on the vaccine production assembly line, inserting trackers into each vial. <laughs> My plan is almost complete. Yep, that's that's the level of criticism, and huh, those conspiracy theorists are so stupid. Anyway, let's ignore them. So, exactly what you would expect, um, I suppose. But anyway, we can all stop collectively holding our breath and waiting for Bill Gates to respond in a substantive way to the criticisms leveled in something like the Who is Bill Gates documentary. He's not going to do it. He's going to take the easy approach by essentially speaking to the lowest common denominator of people who will believe anything what that they're told in the way that they're told it. And, oh, conspiracy theories? Oh, you think Gates is inserting trackers into each vaccine? No, that's not what I said at all. Well, anyway, you're just a crazy lunatic. So, anyway, par for the course, but that gives you a sense of where we're going with this. Anyway, chapter one uh, of the book, Learn from COVID. Oh, okay, what can we learn from COVID, Dr. Gates? Well, first he starts with the Rahm Emanuel argument. There's been no World War III because everyone learned their lesson in, 1990, in 1945. Namely, that World War is horrible and we shouldn't do it again. So they all learned their lessons and formed a new world order and... We've lived happily ever after or something along those lines. So what we need is to take this crisis, this horrible World War II-like event of the pandemic of the last two years and learn our lessons so that it doesn't happen again. And we can do it if we just put our minds to it, gang. Um, he goes on, blah, blah, blah. One country that did particularly well, even though it has the oldest population, is Japan. It has the best compliance with mask mandates of any country, which helps explain some of its success but other factors were probably also at play. Um, fact check, Mr. Gates. Actually, there are not mask mandates in Japan. It's all voluntary compliance over here. Um, yeah, it isn't a law that you have to wear masks. Um, there has been, there is now, certainly, almost universal compliance with these suggestions at this point. But I can attest from my own personal experience that it wasn't until the fall of 2020, several months into this supposed horrible pandemic ravaging and scourging its way across the globe, that Japan became 99.9% .9 of people masked 99.9% .9 of the time. For the first several months, yes, a lot of people were masking up, but a lot of people weren't. And it was not uncommon to see maskless people walking around outside and in stores and what have you here. So that, no, that certainly cannot be the decisive factor in all of this, as people like Gates would like to suggest. Um, so anyway, that's just something that stuck out to me because of my own personal experience, knowing that that was a bunch of cockamamie baloney. Um, but then he goes on to talk about various countries and what they did right and wrong and locking down truckers in Uganda and other such things. Um, then he chides us all. Not everyone did the right thing, of course. Some people have refused to wear masks or get vaccinated. <gasps> oh, man. Oh, these horrible holdouts, right? Um, then he gives an example of a time when there was an overreaction, but we shouldn't we shouldn't critique them for that overreaction. What's he talking about? He's talking about swine flu 76. Remember, this was going to be the biggest thing since 1918 and billions were going to die and ah, we're all going to die. He does parenthetically admit that the outbreak never expanded beyond Fort Dix. In fact, was it ever even at Fort Dix? That's the other question. But anyway, he, he says, well, the outbreak never expanded beyond Fort Dix. Um, and that the vaccine that was then mandated or that was then brought in and was being pushed by the White House on American citizens, 
all across the board, um, did have a slight problem. It was causing uh, Guillain-Barre symptoms in a rate four times higher than you would expect from the average population. But, but he says, one study concluded that even if vaccine did cause GBS in, in some rare cases, its benefits, benefits vastly outweighed the risks. Think about that sentence and think about the work that a phrase like one study concluded is doing in that sentence. First of all, what study? <laughs> That's something to note about this book. No references uh, at all, really. There are some footnotes where basically he just wants to add some sort of parenthetical comment, but there's no there's no references to any medical literature or anything. So do not expect any sort of scientific discussion really going on here. So no, what study concluded? And then the study concluded that even if the vaccine caused GBS, oh, the benefits outweighed the risk. How can a study conclude a value judgment? Who who gets to decide what the, 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 the benefits outweigh the risks? Do you think that's some sort of measurement that you can make and you can measure it in a test tube? Yep, the benefits outweigh the risks, guys. No, first of all, even if we took everything about the safety and, and, and or otherwise of this particular vaccine at face value from the manufacturers and what they were saying and all of that, still, it is not public health bureaucrats' place to decide for every single citizen what their acceptable tolerant risk toleration should be. Oh, it's, it's okay, guys. We've decided that the benefits outweigh the risks. We will put this loaded gun to your head, but don't worry, there's a lot of empty chambers in this barrel. So you're probably, it's probably not going to kill you. And if it does happen to go off and, you know, your brains get exploded out the other side, and, you know, it, it, it's worth it. It's worth it from, from the general population perspective. So therefore, we have the right to put this loaded gun to your head. Anyway, that's, that argument is a particular pet peeve of mine. Um, for obvious reasons. That is one of the foundational things of this biosecurity grid that's coming into place is that the public health bureaucrats pretend that value judgments are science-based and then that they are the only ones who could possibly answer that and you're too dumb to be able to do those kinds of calculations for yourself and or don't have the autonomy. Okay, moving along. Chapter two, create a pandemic prevention team. Now, this is probably what everyone has heard about if you've heard anything about this book by now. It is this little proposal that is embedded in this book. So um, this is the germ team that um, Gates is proposing as this sort of super task force that's going to be working all around the globe and ready to spring into action whenever there's a outbreak or a cluster of cases somewhere in the world and they'll swoop in with their testing and getting things ready and oh, oh something's spreading let's get the vaccines going so this is this is sort of the big the big uh, pande uh, pandemic propaganda push that's embedded in here um, in this context of this chapter of the book he uh, he contextualizes this, he frames it by comparing it to firefighters. So he goes back to 6 AD uh, when Augustus, Caesar Augustus, um, started the first quote-unquote public fire brigade in Rome um, as a result of a fire that had ravaged Rome uh, at that time. Interestingly enough, he kind of skips over the fire in 64 AD and Nero fiddling and all that sort of stuff. Now, the Nero fiddling stuff is probably just myth and folklore, but Nero certainly did use that fire, however it got started, to blame the Christians in what was probably one of the first false flag events that, or one of the best known ancient false flag events. 
hey, it was them there Christians that did that fire, I tell you, let's persecute them. So, anyway, the, oddly enough, Gates doesn't get into that, that history, but he does get into his proposal for this germ team, so let's listen to Will Wheaton describing it for us. I call it the germ. Global Epidemic Response and Mobilization Team. And the job of its people should be to wake up every day asking themselves the same questions. Is the world ready for the next outbreak? What can we do to be better prepared? They should be fully paid, regularly drilled, and prepared to mount a coordinated response to the next threat of a pandemic. The germ team should have the ability to declare a pandemic and work with national governments and the World Bank to raise money for the response very quickly. My back-of-the-napkin estimate is that Germ would need about 3,000 full-time employees. Their skills should run the gamut. Epidemiology, genetics, drug and vaccine development, data systems, diplomacy, rapid response, logistics, computer modeling, and communications. Germ should be managed by the World Health Organization, the only group that can give it global credibility, and it should have a diverse workforce with a decentralized staff working in many places around the world. To get the best staff possible, Germ should have a special personnel system different from what most UN agencies have. Most of the team would be based at individual countries' national public health institutes, though some would sit in the WHO's regional offices and at its headquarters in Geneva. Shut up, Wesley. All right, you get the idea. Okay, so some sort of new globalist entity housed under or with or working through the auspices of the World Health Organization to essentially coordinate and facilitate the next scandemic and take that in whatever way uh, you want. But uh, specifically, he's talking about how germs data scientists would build a system for monitoring reports of clusters uh, or of suspicious cases. Its epidemiologists would monitor reports from national governments and work with WHO colleagues to identify anything that looks like an outbreak. Its product development experts Product development experts would advise governments and companies on the highest priority drugs and vaccines. Ka-ching, ka-ching. Uh, germers who understand computer modeling would coordinate the work of modelers around the world. It works so well for climate science. And the team would take the lead on creating and coordinating common responses, such as how and when to implement border closures and recommend mask use. Dot, dot, dot. And he doesn't say it, but... Well, you're going to have to standardize screening procedures and entry and exit, and everyone's going to have... You're going to need vaccine passports, and they're going to need to be run on a standardized system that, hey, maybe we could... National governments might choose to tie that into the digital currency that I also promote in my other work. I don't know, whatever. Just just back-of-the-napkin estimates going on here, guys. I'm just kind of winging it. Just throwing it out there. Anyway... I think everyone knows where this is going and what this really means. Of course, this is the key, one of the key cadres, or at least the uh, if this was implemented, it would be a key cadre for implementing the next scandemic by, hey, we've we've just determined through a PCR test that this new genetic sequence is spreading around, and we're gonna have to create the bio, I mean, the vaccine to to stop that, and, and now we're gonna have to mandate it in countries around the world. So of course, part of this, he says, diplomacy will inevitably be part of their job, be, of these germers, because they're gonna have to essentially 
coordinate all of these different governments and make sure they're all doing the same things and taking the same steps. You know, this is the kind of thing that you would think they would want to hardwire into some sort of, I don't know, global pandemic treaty through the World Health Organization or something like that. Hmm. I wonder if we'll see something along these lines coming through in the negotiations. Not that I necessarily think the WHO will literally create G-E-R-M, the germ team, exactly as proposed by Bill Gates, but something along these lines um, certainly seems to be in the cards, doesn't it? Anyway, uh, then in this chapter, he goes on to cite the elimination of polio at the hands of the WHO and Rotary International as the example that he's drawing on of how to set up something like this, talking about the emergency operation centers that have operated in polio eradication zones. He says, uh, picture the office of a political campaign in the last days before the election, and you'll get an idea of what an EOC looks like. Maps and charts are pasted up on the walls, but instead of tracking poll numbers, they're revealing the latest polio data. Yeah, exactly. Um, interesting, actually, analogy. Yeah, it's kind of like the selection scam. Um, and here's the upshot. Armed with data from local door-to-door -door vaccinators and digital tools to track where these vaccinators have gone and what they did there, quote, the staff at an EOC, Emergency Operations Center, even know how many households refuse to have their children vaccinated. The measurement is incredibly precise. The coordinator of Pakistan's national EOC reported that they had reduced the refusal rate from 1.7% in 2020 to 0.8% the next year, and that in one campaign, just 0.3% of households had refused the vaccine. Yes, we're, we're getting rid of those refuseniks and we can identify them and track and trace them and digitally squelch them out of existence. Ha ha ha. It's almost complete. Um, he does go on to say that the germ team will not be frontline medical workers actually applying medical procedures or anything. They will just be coordinating and managing and collecting data from the health workers and then using that to essentially coordinate the bigger plans. This is this is the big picture stuff, guys. Not the not the doctors on the ground kind of actually trying to help people who are actually sick. No, no, no. That's clearly not what this is about. And then he estimates that the cost for germ is going to be about a billion dollars a year for its 3,000 workers. So how can we afford not to, guys? Speaking of which, uh, chapter three, get better at detecting outbreaks early. Yes, sir. Um, he starts talking about uh, epidemic disease surveillance, which he defines as the task of watching for the cases that are merrily troublesome, the ones that could be catastrophic, and everything in between, and ringing the alarm bell when necessary. And, of course, we trust Dr. Gates and his germ team to make that decision, right? Uh, he does admit that the term surveillance has an unfortunate Orwellian connotation, but in this sense, it just refers to the networks of people around the world who keep track of what's happening with health day to day. Dot, 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 and he doesn't say it, but oh yeah, and all the digital tools of tracking and surveillance and, and all, that we've talked about before and all the ones that we haven't talked about and, uh, you know, the ID2020 and all of that. Biometrics identification schemes that are going to be lumped in here. That That's part of the surveillance too, don't you think? Vaccine passports that are tracking contact, tracing you in the background and and allowing you or disallowing you from going from across this imaginary barrier or that one. Anyway, um, then he tells the intense story, his word, intense story, of the novel citywide approach to studying the flu that was pioneered just 
by coincidence, in my hometown of Seattle, just by total coincidence. And I should note that several times in this book, he mentions the University of Washington. He mentions the Institute um, for the uh, uh, Health Metrics and Evaluation, I-H-E-M-A, I-H-E-M-E, is that it? Um, that I did, of course, talk about in Who is Bill Gates. That he, And he always mentions it as if it's just this, some completely random entity that just happens to be located in his very hometown of Seattle. Wow, what an amazing coinkydink. Without noting that the Gates Foundation has literally supplied hundreds of millions of dollars to that institute specifically. Um, I mean, the vast majority of its work is funded by Gates, but he certainly talks them up in this book as if they're totally a different thing, guys. Anyway, before he gets into that intense story, he uh, talks about diagnostics and PCR tests and how they work, and notes specifically that false positives aren't a problem. If, if, if it says you have it, you almost certainly have it. But false negatives are a possibility because sometimes you get the test back and it says you don't have it, but you got the symptoms, so you should keep taking it until you get that positive. <laughs> I mean, well, it's crazy. Anyway, then he gets into this Seattle flu study story from 2018. So the Seattle flu study set up to test samples of respiratory pathogens uh, for genetic code to study how different flu strains enter the city and how they spread. And then in uh, February of 2020, one of the researchers discovers that one of these, or a couple of these flu samples, aren't really flu. They're COVID! Surprise! So it had actually been moving through the state for quite some time. And then he gets into the ethical dilemma. Well, actually, the, they weren't supposed to be testing for anything else. Or they, No, actually, no. The actual story was that the, the people who were being tested or this particular sample was taken from someone who didn't even know that his sample was going to be used in any kind of research whatsoever. So it would have been unethical to share the, those results with anyone, even the patient himself. Um, but so there was this big ethical dilemma. And so what did they decide? Ah, ethics, schmethics, let's, let's give this to the New York Times, which is exactly what they did. <laughs> anyway, that's an interesting and perhaps revealing bit of the story right there. Then he goes on to defend Neil Ferguson. Yes, that Neil Ferguson and his two million deaths in the U.S. model that uh, was used to pump this right into overdrive right in uh, March 2020, and to really justify the first round of lockdowns, um, he says, you know, Neil Ferguson did nothing wrong because he you know, he was portrayed as some sort of scaremonger. But, you know, if you really read the study, he was just saying what would happen if everyone refused to listen to their governments? Because that's a good model, right? I know I can dial things in and show you exactly what happens if people don't wear masks or if they do wear masks or whatever nonsense is going through models like that. And there's so much to say about Neil Ferguson and his models and the charlatanry involved in that. But I've said it before, so I will refrain from repeating it here. Anyway, Gates, of course, doesn't get into any of that. He just says Neil Ferguson was right. Um, anyway, the whole point of the chapter, we need more testing. There's the punchline. Um, chapter four, help people protect themselves right away, which starts with a cartoon, which I guess we're led to supposed to believe was hand sketched by Bill Gates, right? I don't know. Anyway, clearly not. But anyway, it's about Bill Gates's social anxiety. <laughs> yeah. 
Oh, social anxiety in COVID, I should say. Um, what do we do when we meet? Should we handshake? Can I hug? Can we do we do a fist bump or a elbow bump? You know, what's the protocol these days? Everybody's got greeting anxiety, which is his way of broaching essentially the question about what sh- what are the rules and what should the rules be and how should they be communicated to everybody? And so then he goes on to talk about people and their unwillingness to follow the rules of their health authorities. It is unfortunate that in some places, especially in the United States, people have resisted making choices that will keep them and their families safer. I don't agree with these choices, but I also think it's unhelpful to simply label them anti-science, as so many people do. In her book, On Immunity, Eula Biss looks at vaccine hesitancy in a way that I think also helps explain the resentment we're seeing toward other public health measures. The distrust of science is just one factor, she says, and it is compounded by other things that trigger fear and suspicion. Pharmaceutical companies, big government elites, the medical establishment, male authority— For some people, invisible benefits that might materialize in the future are not enough to get them past the worry that someone is trying to pull the wool over their eyes. The problem is even worse in periods of severe political polarization, such as the one we're in now. It didn't help that when COVID first hit, there wasn't enough evidence to weigh the costs and benefits of different measures. It was especially hard to make the case for painful measures, like closing businesses and schools. Many of these steps hadn't been widely used since the 1918 pandemic, and while the costs associated with them were predictable and immediately apparent to anyone who thought about it, the precise benefits, especially given that we were dealing with a new pathogen, were not. No, no, no. The the idiots who disagree with masking and vaccines and lockdowns, they're not just anti-science. They have a whole range of mental problems. Now shut up and listen to the science, which is anything we tell you it is, even without any actual real-world data. (laughs) Which is literally what he's saying there. (laughs) I mean, uh, of course, the, uh, the benefits of lockdowns and all of this were immediately apparent to anyone who thought about it. Implying that if you disagree, you just haven't thought about it. But the precise benefits, uh, well, they're not so apparent. Why? Because, well, they're they're impossible to measure, <laughs> which is what he gets into next. So basically, he gets into the old, um, the old conundrum, the old canard, really. That uh, well, you know, it would have been so much worse. So um, he goes on to say that things like lockdowns have a huge impact on a society, and implementing them is a massive undertaking. But we can do them right away, and we know how to do them better than we did before. Yes, we can lock you down better than we did before. Um, He then goes on to quote, approvingly quote, Tony Fauci as saying, if it looks like you're overreacting, you're probably doing the right thing. Yeah, I'm sure that is something Fauci would say, isn't it? Um, So the economy was bad. This is a direct quote. The economy was bad when businesses shut down, but it could have been worse, even worse, if the virus had been allowed to run rampant and kill millions more people than it already had. And he illustrates this by this unprovable, unfalsifiable, non, non-hypothesis, non-scientific statement with this incredibly valuable chart that he's drawn up. Well, again, he's drawn up. 
the cost of locking down versus the cost of not locking down. Tap, tap, tap on the shoulder. <laughs> and you'll notice that there, is, there isn't an x-axis or even a y-axis. It's just a couple of bars because this is not an actual graph that's actually trying to make an actual uh, economic argument. Of course it isn't because how could you? You can't possibly measure what the cost of not locking down would have been if you locked down, right? You can't run experiments with the real world like that. We can't go back and undo things that were done. So anyway, he's just going to tell you, oh, it would have been a lot worse if we didn't do this, which of course is a point I've made many, many, many times. Same facts, opposite conclusions. Yeah, of course, the, the most lockdown places had the, the the most deaths, the most the most economic pain, the most everything. But that's because they the, it was very bad. So they had to lock down. Imagine how bad it would have been if they didn't lock down. The, the unfalsifiable hypothesis there. So no, this has nothing to do with science. This is, it pretends it's science, but it is not science. Um, he then goes on to say that the case for closing schools is compelling. But although Bill is, of course, a big fan of online learning, who would have thought? Uh, he doesn't think it can completely replace real physical face-to-face student-teacher interaction in the early grades. Anyway, he's very careful to stipulate that. Um, Anyway, we won't have to close schools next time as long as they can produce enough vaccines for everyone within six months of the outbreak, which is something that he goes on to talk about being a new goal. Um, So flu, by the way, in case you didn't notice, flu disappeared from the face of the earth for a while because of these NPIs, these non-pharmaceutical interventions like social distancing, masking, lockdowns. Citation needed? <laughs> like, well, yeah, again, citation needed on this entire book, but just trust him on that. Um, we should use contact tracing to find super spreaders is one of his great ideas that he comes up with because super spreaders are the real problem. Uh, then he goes on, good ventilation matters, social distancing works, and it's mind-blowing how cheap and effective masks are. Yep, masks totally work, guys. Okay, chapter five, find new treatments fast. Um, this chapter is full of patronizing and demeaning statements about anyone who looked at any other alternative ways of taking care of your body or health during this crisis other than what was officially approved by the FDA and the WHO, I tell you guys. Um, so people who are trying to take vitamins or uh, hydrochloroquine or ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine or ivermectin, oh, you know, it's rational to... Or it's understandable why people would have hope in such things, but it's irrational once we've determined that they have no effect. So the real disease treatments that proved effective were dexamethasone, remdesivir, molnupiravir, monoclonal antibodies, ka-ching, ka-ching for the big pharma industrial complex. Um, he goes through the history of clinical tra- trials, 1747 trials uh, with uh, Navy, British uh, Navy, naval seamen. Uh, trying to cure their scurvy. Um, first placebo trial in 1799, the first bl- double-blind trial in 1943. And then he goes through and walks through the phase one, two, three trials for drug testing these days and regulatory approval process in just broad general terms for the lay public. Nothing, again, particularly in-depth or insightful. Um, and he doesn't, of course, go into any of the details of the studies, for example, for remdesivir and um, uh, the unmasking of the double blind and the vaccine tests and other such basic, basic, basic breaches of these very protocols that he's holding up as the gold standard. And this is what we've learned over the centuries. And 
all of them being broken in the past couple of years, but he doesn't even mention that, let alone try to make an excuse for it. Uh, then he inserts, with advantages in artificial learning, uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning, it's now possible to use computers to identify weak spots on pathogens that we already know about, and we'll be able to do the same when new pathogens arise. This idea of setting these algorithms loose on everything we know about these different types of pathogens to try to identify things that, and then try to line them up with everything we know about drugs, and it will find the right magical combinations, because... Let's all worship the AI godhead. Anyway, chapter six, get ready to make vaccines. <laughs> yeah, is it surprising to you that that would be one of the chapters here? No, of course not. Yes, the amazing achievement of creating successful COVID vaccines in one year. One of the greatest accomplishments in the history of medical science. Wait, where have I heard that before? The vaccine is one of the greatest achievements of mankind. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's where I heard it before. Yeah. Hey, remember when Trump was totally going to appoint RFK Jr. to head a vaccine safety panel, but then dropped it when Bill Gates told him to? Pepperidge Farm remembers. All right. Anyway, moving right along. Um, uh, they, what follows next in this book is a handy-dandy explainer about mRNA and how mRNA vaccines work, which I'm sure you've seen many times, but even as a nice little graphic up just to show it down and distill it down as much as possible for the riffraff out there. mRNA encodes instructions for spike protein. Cells produce spike protein. Your immune system responds. Bada bing, bada boom. Why, why are people so upset about this idea? I mean, what's it's just hijacking cells to start encoding proteins of whatever genetic thing we sequence we program in there. You can totally trust us, guys. We got it from a PCR. <laughs> Anyway, uh, then he goes on to talk about the stringent, the oh-so-stringent vaccine approval process and the importance of informed consent for getting vaccines approved. Don't worry, guys. These mRNA vaccines were thoroughly tested before anything happened. And you have no idea how much work goes into producing any sort of vaccine. There's so many regulations and hoops and a lot of red tape and bureaucratic paperwork that you have to jump through. You know, it's kind of odd that he didn't mention anything about the Gates-sponsored HPV vaccine trials in India for some reason. The decade of vaccines kicked off with a Gates-funded $3.6 million observational study of HPV vaccines in India that, according to a government investigation, violated the human rights of the study participants with gross violations of consent and failed to properly report adverse events experienced by the vaccine recipients. After the deaths of seven girls involved in the trial were reported, a parliamentary investigation concluded that the Gates-funded Program for Appropriate Technology and Health, or PATH, which ran the study, had been engaged in a scheme to help ensure healthy markets for GlaxoSmithKline and Merck, the manufacturers of the Gardasil and Cervarix vaccines that had been so generously donated for use in the trial. Had PATH been successful in getting the HPV vaccine included in the universal immunization program of the concerned countries, this would have generated windfall profit for the manufacturers by way of automatic sale, year after year, without any promotional or marketing expenses. It is well known that once introduced into the immunization program, it becomes politically impossible to stop any vaccination. Chandra M. Gulhadi, editor of the influential Monthly Index of Medical Specialties, remarked that, it is shocking to see how an American organization used surreptitious methods to establish itself in India. And Samarin Nundi, 
editor emeritus of the National Medical Journal of India, lamented that this is an obvious case where Indians were being used as guinea pigs. Hmm, I wonder why he left that out. Oh, that's right, it's because all criticism of him comes from crazy, fringe-nut conspiracy theorists who thinks that he's inserting movement trackers into each vaccine. <laughs> yep, you got, got me pegged there, Bill. Um, okay, so then we get to the big problem, which we all know is how to get these life-saving vaccines into the arms of as many poor, starving brown people as possible, because we all know that their main concern in the world is COVID, the scourge of COVID. That's what it's what is driving everyone in the world right now is just COVID, COVID, COVID. So we have to figure out how to get these wonderful vaccines that, hey, have you heard, are totally safe and effective into as many people as possible. So he talks about some of the different proposals for doing that and uh, makes absolutely certain to address the IP issue. Waiving intellectual property protections in 2021 would not have meaningfully increased the supply of COVID vaccines when we needed them. So no, the answer is second source deals. So vaccine manufacturers allowing other vaccine manufacturers from different countries to use their facilities or giving them guidance on using facilities and sharing their recipes and all of that. Anyway, it's kind of a side issue, but of course, of course, for anyone who knows about Gates and monopolization being his game, will know that intellectual property is not something he's ever going to poo-poo or in any way um, try to build workarounds for. So um, then he gets to the problem of delivering to the last mile and talks about, you know, these vials for this vaccine that was developed years ago couldn't even fit in the bags, the cooler bags that the health workers had to carry them to the people's door and stuff, blah, blah, blah. Then he talks about vaccine hesitancy again, and again he says there isn't one single reason for it, but that fear and suspicion are factors, and he actually does cite the Tuskegee study of following around those black men with syphilis even when there was a cure for it and letting them essentially rot to see what happens. Um, I, I, so, you know, I, I guess I can understand why there has been historical hesitancy in some groups. Um, and then he goes on to propose some ways to get around that kind of hesitancy. Hesitancy, again, that's a stupid word. And even I fall into the trap of using it because, of course, it's the word that they use. But it is clearly an embedded time bomb in our language. Hesitancy. It just means I'm just waiting a little bit. I'll, I'm going to take it, but it, I just need a little more persuading first. You know, I need a little foreplay before you insert the needle. Um, uh, he goes on to, well, how do we get around this? hesitancy. Uh, it can help when people see politicians and celebrities getting vaccinated. Seeing them getting vaccinated, yeah. And maybe most of all, they need to hear the truth from trusted sources like religious leaders and local health workers they already know. Which sounds actually quite a lot like what we were hearing about in Event 201 with regards to communicating these types of things to the masses. How are we going to do it? Uh, well, we're going to have to get health uh, reg regulations and advice filtered through trusted authorities, people in, uh, that people will trust, like CEOs of major corporations is what they said in Event 201. Remember that? <laughs> anyway, this, of course, also uh, directly coincides with the work that I did. For example, a couple years ago, you might remember Propaganda Watch, who, WHO, cares what celebrities think, talking about the P literal PR campaign and the advertising firm that they hired to get celebrities on board with promoting the, the WHO health messaging. 
health. All right, uh, chapter seven, practice, 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 which is a really mm, benign title for a very, very malevolent part of what could be the infrastructure for the real biosecurity terror state of the future. So this is talking about drills, exercises, simulations, and he even gives a handy-dandy little guide to, to, to differentiate. We sometimes talk about them as if they're all the same, but no, there are different things like drills, tabletop exercises, functional exercises, and full-scale exercises, and they all mean different things and are run in different ways by different people. And then he gives a whole laundry list of exercises, including a couple that I hadn't heard of, like Winter Willow 2007 and Cygnus 2016, which were apparently a big scandal in the UK a couple of years ago, uh, when it was reported that they had been warning about the unpreparedness, one of those kinds of things. Um, then there's Crimson Contagion 2019. He goes into Dark Winter and notes that an observer I know, cryptic uh, appellation there, documented that the outcome was smallpox one Humanity Zero. Hmm. Interesting, yeah. Uh, well, is it Smallpox 1, Humanity Zero, or Dark Winter Team 1, Humanity Zero? Anyway, Atlantic Storm 2005, Claydex 2018, a simulation held at the Munich Security Conference in 2020, which you might remember when Gates was making the rounds at the Munich Security Conference warning about bioterror. And, of course, he even specifically mentions Event 201. And, of course, has to put in a parenthetical footnote aside um, at, at any of those conspiracy theorists who would ponder about October 2019 having a simulation of a worldwide spreading novel coronavirus pandemic. Uh, he does say the Gates Foundation was one of the funders of the Event 201 exercise. Some conspiracy theorists suggest that it predicted COVID. As the organizers made clear, it wasn't a prediction, and they said so at the time. You can find a statement about this at centerforhealthsecurity.org. Oh, case closed. They said this isn't a prediction. Of course it isn't a prediction of COVID. It is a, a war game of exactly what you were going to do for the next couple of years and making sure that everybody at that table was on board with the agenda. And then when they see it happening, oh, I well, we already know what to do. Hmm, anyway. So after citing these deep state predictive programming operations known as drills and exercises, he says, quote, in most countries, these exercises can be run by national public health institutions, emergency operation centers, and military leaders with the germ team that I described in chapter two, acting as an advisor and reviewer. Of course, yes, the germers. And germ can also test the readiness of health systems in a variety of ways. For example, with tuberculosis and sexually transmitted diseases, how well does a health system trace the recent contacts of people who test positive? So we can get that, we can nudge that up using you know, digital tracking of various sorts, right? Uh, then he discusses a 2013 Orlando Airport aviation-related disaster exercise that employed 600 crisis actors, 400 first responders, and staff from 16 ho uh, hospitals. He discusses a full-scale military exercise called Large Scale Exercise 2021 that was conducted by the U.S. military in August of 2021. Um, he admits that the analogy between war games and germ games is not perfect, but... Dot, dot, dot. Then he starts in on his spiel about bioterrorism and basically says, you see, this is all about defense anyway, so we spend so much, hundreds of billions on the Pentagon, we should spend at least uh, several billion a year on bioterror defense, damn it. Ka-ching, ka-ching. Chapter 8, Close the Health Gap Between Rich and Poor Countries, where he says the pandemic's overall impact was tough, toughest in the world's low- and middle-income countries. In 2020, 
it pushed nearly 100 million people around the world into extreme poverty. What? The pandemic's impact on the low and middle income countries? It pushed 100 million people into extreme poverty? No, 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 no. The response, quote unquote, by the health authorities, quote unquote, pushed 100 million people into poverty. That's what did it. The lockdowns were certainly responsible for a lot of that damage. But if we didn't lock down, it would have been so much worse, is the inevitable response. But anyway, again, the assumptions are embedded at such a deep level that unless you stop and actually stop reading and say, no, this is wrong, these embedded assumptions that he's running with are totally not valid, then it just gets completely threaded into the fabric of this narrative that it was the pandemic that did it, I tell you. And so in order to avoid that, we're going to have to have even more stringent controls and screenings and eventually lockdowns and control over every aspect of your daily life. And that'll be so much better for the economy. Uh, the pandemic caused 17 million excess deaths worldwide. Again, asterisk, citation needed. He just says it. So it must be true. But many millions more die each decade from complications due to childbirth, HIV, malaria, intestinal diseases, etc. And we don't pay any attention to them, do we? And of course, this is the argument that is going to be made. Well, we should be spending a lot more of our time, energy, efforts investing in big pharma and their solutions to our health problems. And of course, we're going to need to make sure that the rich country governments fund the CEPIs and GAVIs and other organizations that just happen to be associated with Bill Gates and his big pharma buddies so that they can provide these life-saving medicines to these poor, starving brown people. He cites the greatest, what he calls the great, one of the greatest stories in human history that every high school student should know by heart, 2010-5 which is, in 1960, 20% of the world's children did not reach their fifth birthday. By 1990, that was down to 10%, and today, that's about 5%. So, in other words, child mortality rate cut is cut in half every 30 years, and we're on track to do it again well before 2050, Gates tells us. So, uh, then he launches into the big question that concerns everyone when they hear this fact. When you hear... Child mortality rates are having every 30 years and more and more children are living. What's your first thought out there? I'm sure your thought is, think about all these children who are living now instead of dying as babies. Oh, the planet! We're going to be overpopulated, right? That's everyone's rational response. But don't worry, Bill Gates has this all sorted out for us. Over the years, I've given enough speeches on 2010-5 and seen enough tweets and Facebook comments to know the question that inevitably comes next. Won't saving all these children lead to overpopulation? It's a natural concern. It just seems like common sense that if more children survive, the global population will increase faster. In fact, I used to worry about this problem myself. But I was wrong. The answer is emphatically and without a doubt, no. Lower rates of child mortality do not lead to overpopulation. The best explanation of why this is true was given by my friend Hans Rosling. I first became aware of Hans when he gave an unforgettable TED Talk in 2006 called The Best Stats You've Ever Seen. Hans had spent decades working in public health, where they focus on poor countries. And he used this talk to share some surprising facts about how health was improving around the world. 
Eventually, I got to meet Hans and spend a lot of time with him. I admired the clever, creative ways he showed people that the countries with the highest child mortality rates, places like Somalia, Chad, Central African Republic, Sierra Leone, Nigeria, and Mali are also the countries where women have the most children. When the child mortality rate drops, so does the size of the average family. It happened in France in the 1700s, Germany in the late 1800s, and in Southeast Asia and Latin America in the second half of the 20th century. There are various reasons that explain why this is the case. One factor is that, especially in places where there's no pension system or other support for the elderly, many parents feel that they need to have enough children so that they'll have someone to take care of them when they're older. If the odds are high that some of their children won't survive to adulthood, they'll make the perfectly rational decision to have more kids. The drop in family size has led to a remarkable phenomenon. The world recently passed what Hans called peak child. That is, the number of children under five hit its maximum and is going down. The benefit? As the United Nations Population Fund explains on its website, smaller numbers of children per household generally lead to larger investments per child, more freedom for women to enter the formal workforce, and more household savings for old age. When this happens, the national economic payoff can be substantial. Oh, phew. I don't know about you, but when I hear about children living instead of dying, all I can think about is, oh no, more people. Won't the world get too crowded? But luckily, that's not the case. Better healthcare means fewer children, so yay. Yay, I hate humanity, and I know you do too, right, fellow Malthusian? And I'm sure Japan is celebrating about the fact that they have hit, for the 11th consecutive year, a new low in childbirths, which equates to a new largest drop in, record, in recorded history in J Japanese population size. Now even Elon Musk is saying, you know, if this continues, Japan will breed itself out of extinction uh, in the not-too-distant not too future. Well, yeah, yeah. Yay! Mission accomplished, Gates. Anyway, yeah. What else do I need to say about that? And what else do I need to say about Chapter 8? Blah, blah, blah. Vaccines, 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 yada, yada, yada. Okay, Chapter 9. Make and fund a plan for preventing pandemics. Ka-ching, ka-ching. Uh, don't worry, guys. COVID isn't over. It might become endemic. And what about long COVID, which has many of the same symptoms as the side effects of the vaccines? What a remarkable coinkydink. Anyway, so there's there's plenty more grift to be made with the COVID scam. That ain't over yet. But also, beyond that, how about the next pandemic? Not COVID, the next scam that we come along with. So he sets four priorities for a global plan to eradicate respiratory diseases. Eradicate respiratory diseases and prevent pandemics. I'm thinking that's not going to happen without some a lot of engineering of the human species. But anyway... What does he have to say about it? The four priorities are, number one, make and deliver better tools. By which he means vaccines and tests and vaccines and antivirals and vaccines and artificial intelligence software and vaccines and diagnostics and vaccines and something else. Oh, that's right, vaccines. 
Um, number two, build the germ team. Of course, he's got to hit that again. Number three, improve disease surveillance. Hello, vaccine passports and biosecurity screening. Number four, strengthen health systems. So, in other words, get more big pharma involved in more people's lives around the world. Yay. And, of course, we're going to need funding to do this. Ka-ching, ka-ching. So, uh, we also, of course, need to ease, quote, this is a quote, ease the path for approval to, to approval for products. Because this is what health is all about, is getting products to the market. And then I think we are finally, after all of this, and we are in the final chapter of the book here, after all of the foregoing, I think we arrive at at least a clue as to who the, what this book is really about, who it's really intended for, what it's really meant to persuade you of. And that finally comes towards the very, very end of the final chapter here. When I started telling friends that I was working on a book about pandemics, I could see that they were a little surprised. Many of them had been nice enough to read the book on climate change I published in 2021. And although they were too polite to say it, they were clearly thinking, how many more of these books are you going to write where you're telling us about some big problem and a plan to solve it? We have to do climate. Now we're doing pandemics and health. What else is there? The answer is that these are the two major problems I think we need to put more resources into. Climate change and pandemics, including the possibility of an attack by bioterrorists, are the most likely existential threats for humans. Fortunately, there are opportunities to make major progress on both of them in the next decade. For climate change, if we spend the next 10 years developing green technologies, setting up the right financial incentives, and getting the right public policies in place, we can be on a path to net zero emissions of greenhouse gases by 2050. The news is even better for pandemics. Over the next decade, if governments expand their investments in research and adopt evidence-based policies, we can develop most of the tools we need to keep an outbreak from turning into a disaster. The amount of money required for pandemic preparedness is far less than what it will take to avoid a climate disaster. This cause may seem remote. It can be hard to feel that you have any ability to affect the course of a pandemic. A mysterious new disease is frightening, and it can also be frustrating because it seems that we have so little power to do anything about it. But there are things that each of us can do. Elect leaders who will take pandemics seriously and make good science-based decisions when the time comes. Follow their advice about masking up, staying home, and keeping your distance when you're out. Get vaccinated when you can, and avoid the misinformation and disinformation that flood social media. Get your information regarding public health practices from reliable sources, such as the WHO, the CDC in the United States, and its equivalent in other countries. Most of all, don't let the world forget how awful COVID was. Do whatever you can to keep pandemics on the agenda, locally, nationally, internationally, so we can break the cycle of panic and neglect that makes them the most important thing in the world for a time until we forget about them and go back to our daily lives. We're all eager to return to the way things were before, but there is one thing we cannot afford to go back to, 
our complacency about pandemics. Well, there you go. That's it in a nutshell. There you go. Connecting the climate scam to the scamdemic and noting the uh, similarities between the two and how we're going to have to transform society to deal with it. Anyway, I think that's that's it in a nutshell, and that's all he wrote. Oh, wait, no, it isn't. Of course, there's an afterword as well on, can you guess, how COVID changed the course of our digital future. Of course, because it is Bill Gates. Of course, he's going to talk about the importance of this for driving us into the techno technocratic technological world of the future where everything's going to be remote and socially distanced and all of that. So um, specifically, quote, We'll look back at March 2020 as an inflection point when digitization began to accelerate rapidly. Ugh. I do that too well. Someone save me from this man and his horrible voice. Anyway, you know how this chapter goes without even having to read it. Blah, 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 remote work, yada, 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 schooling from home, etc., etc., Microsoft Teams to save the day, and blah, 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 into the metaverse. You know that narrative, I'm sure, without even having to read it. So, finally, we have arrived at the end of the book. There's a little glossary of terms at the end, but that is the end of the book. So, here's the real question. Let's return to that fundamental question that I posed at the beginning of all of this, because I think it's an important one to ask whenever we're, we're dissecting a piece of propaganda. Who is the target audience for this? Who is this propaganda being aimed at? And for what purpose? What is it trying to motivate them to do? And I, the first order of, of business here is to establish this is not in any way even pretending to be a scientific or medical treatise of any sort or any sort of deep dive into the mechanics and of how this really works and citations. And as I say, there's nothing. There's zero references. It's just, you know, just take Bill Gates' word for it. So that's not the level at which this is aimed, clearly. It's not a, a scholarly or serious work in that sense at all. And it's clearly being marketed as a mass market trade trade paperback, is it a hardcover, whatever, whatever he's selling it as. And uh, it's he's doing the sort of general talk show circuit, Good Morning America, PR publicity for it. This is clearly aimed at a mass audience. It's for the layman. But why? What is the point of lecturing to the layman about the need to create a germ team at the WHO level and, uh, you know, accelerate vaccine development and cut bureaucratic hurdles for getting vaccines approved and things? What? Why? What is the point of that? What is, what is the average person who's going to be reading this book? What is their role in this? And really, think about it. Who would buy this book? I mean... <laughs> people who have to do it to explain it to their audience so that they don't have to read it. Yeah, <laughs> but I, I'm imagining that's not a huge demographic in the audience. But imagine the type of person who would read this. It, it, you know it is the type of person who would buy this specifically to put it on their coffee table or to bring it into the office so that they can be seen to be reading Bill Gates's new book. And whether they actually read it or not, they won't gain a, a single real thing from it. They'll just, oh, did you know about firefighting in ancient Rome? No, people aren't reading this seriously at all. It's just meant as a, hey, look, I've read Bill Gates' book kind of thing. Yeah, like Tedros tweeting or whatever about, hey, thank you, Bill Gates, for sending me your new book. But actually, I think that's important to understand because it does speak to an underlying point about this that I always go back to because it is important to understand. Yet, ultimately, what this is about is drumming up sort of general public support or at least general public understanding of the unfolding biosecurity agenda 
And the fact, yeah, they're going to try to hardwire some sort of germ team type organization into the World Health Organization through the back door doesn't have to be approved through any formal treaty or anything because everyone's already signed up to the WHO. So they'll just implement it and blah, blah, blah. Vaccine development. We're going to have 100 day vaccines. All of this kind of stuff is just to essentially get the public on board with the idea if not even actively supporting it, because again, even if you did actively support it, what are you going to do? Vote harder next time to vote in someone who will kiss Bill Gates' ring even harder than Trump. Is there such a thing? Um, No, 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 it's not about that. It's about, it's, it's really about disarming the public. All that evil needs is for good men to do nothing. So as long as people kind of understand this is out there, this is what, oh, this is what's happening next. This is what they're doing. Oh, there it is. I see them doing it. Okay, well, there you go. It's just the inevitability of it and just getting it drilled into people's heads. Ah, just sit, just sit down. Nothing you can do. Just watch it unfold. That's all that, that's all that they want. And this is exactly one of the ways that they do it. This is probably one of the more ham-fisted ones, but everything Bill Gates does from a PR perspective is (laughs) ham-fisted. Elon Musk is the very cool cutting edge. Hey guys, I'm, I'm one of you cool internet people. I can use memes kind of technocrats. And Bill Gates is the dweeby technocrat that nobody, nobody would take seriously if he wasn't a multi-multi-multi-multi-multi-billionaire. So anyway, um, that's ultimately what this book is about and what it's for. As I say, I literally, I zero out of 10 would not recommend for anyone, not even for dissecting from a propagandistic point of view. I've just told you what I think are the main points in here. Again, again, I never want to be seen to be saying, don't read something. If you're going to read it, read it. But if you find anything of real propagandistic value in here, even from the perspective of evaluating propaganda, let me know, because I didn't see it. Um, and certainly, even for the normies, again, I think it's just a status symbol. Hey, I've got Bill Gates's new book. I think that's just the only way that people would even think to read this book. If you want an actual book that might have a little bit more in terms of references and stuff, of course, the real Anthony Fauci. Have you read it yet? Has 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 anyone actually read this yet? Literally thousands of of references and a lot more detail on such things as the remdesivir approval trials and other such things that Gates certainly did not go into this level of detail when he, in his little rinky-dink silly fluffy book. This is a real book with a lot of research about the ways that this fraud was perpetrated. It's, it's worth your time. Gates's twaddle is not worth your time. Perhaps you didn't need to sit through all that to understand that much, but there it is. Anyway, I've just done the deep dive. Hope you appreciate it. And uh, if you do, once again, I couldn't do this work without you, so I do appreciate all your support, monetary and otherwise. On that note, let's clear the air a little, and I think we'll leave things with a completely different message, speaking against the Gateses of the world and what they want to accomplish with all of this. I'm going to end uh, with the letter to the future that I penned a couple of years ago um, in the midst of the height peak hysteria of the scamdemic that I think it's good to remind ourselves of at this time. And for people who haven't seen it yet, who is Bill Gates? Of course, available at corporatereport.com Gates if you want to know the real story behind Gates and his agenda. I think that's a good place to at least start exploring that in some greater detail. And on that note, I'm going to leave it here for today. James Corbett, CorbettReport.com. Thank you for joining me. Looking forward to talking to you again in the near future. Hello, this is James Corbett, CorbettReport.com. 
I've been told by a number of subscribers that last weekend's subscriber newsletter editorial was perhaps the most important thing that I have ever written, and they have asked me to share this more widely online. And in order to do so, a number of people have requested that I make a video version of this editorial. The only problem being that this is explicitly an epistle, literally written pen and paper, so it is not meant for this format, but I will do so, although I am loath to make a video version of this, I will do so if only to increase the possibility that this digital message in a bottle will wash upon the shores of someone out there with ears to hear. If you would prefer to read the text of this letter rather than have it read to you, please follow the link in the show notes to the actual text itself. So this is a letter to the future dated April 11th, 2020. The lamps are going out all over Europe. We shall not see them lit again in our lifetime. World War I conspirator Edward Grey. I do not write these words for my contemporaries. We are the damned. It is our lot now to watch as the lamp of liberty is extinguished, our burden to bear witness to the final flickering of the flame of freedom. No, I don't write these words for my peers. I write them for those yet to come, the inhabitants of that future dystopia whose birth pangs we are experiencing, the remnant of once free humanity who might, through some miracle I can't even imagine, come across this electronic message in a bottle. I know that it's almost hopeless, that the chance of these words surviving the coming internet purge are slim at best, that even if, against all odds, this message does wash up on your digital shores, the chance of these words being understood by you is even slimmer. Not because you don't understand English, but because you no longer use these words I'm writing. Freedom. Humanity. Individual. Still, I am here to record the end of an era, so I will press on in the hope against hope that someone, somewhere in that future digital dark age, will have eyes to see and ears to hear. The darkness is descending. Let there be no mistake, we all know this. We know what it means when 17 million Americans, a full 10% of the workforce, are added to the unemployment rolls in a mere three weeks. When they are joined by millions more newly unemployed ex-workers all around the globe. When modern-day breadlines stretch for miles in the heart of America's once proud cities. When the phony baloney fiat funny money debt rises to over 24 trillion and the Fed's Sovietization of the economy is complete. We know what it means when police start shooting people dead for not wearing a mask. When drones police quarantines from the sky and robots police lockdowns on the ground. When governments admit to tracking every movement of every citizen and begin internal checkpoints where digital immunity passports determine who may pass and who must stay in their home. We know what it means when billionaires start telling us that only their new experimental mRNA vaccines will be able to release us from this nightmare, when they threaten to mark us with invisible ink tattoos to ID the vaccinated, when they tell us that we will not be able to buy or sell or participate in the economy until we can prove our immunity. It means that the corona world order has arrived. Oh, sure, some will still deny it, but they are only fooling themselves. They're afraid to admit that it's true. Many are still under the old conditioning that told them to bleat conspiracy theorist at anyone questioning authority. We have a name for that kind. Sheep. 
or sometimes sheeple. The masses in our day are kept in the pen by jackbooted sheepdogs of the police state and led along by the political puppets who act as their shepherds. Occasionally a wise old-timer in the flock cottons onto the game, but the shepherd has only ever fleeced the flock, so he resigns himself to his fate. Why struggle? It's mostly pointless. Never did the sheeple suspect that someday the shepherds would lead them to the slaughter. It is a term of derision, of course, sheeple. But I like to think that it doesn't just speak to our stupidity. It speaks to a naivety, an innocence. We are trusting and gentle creatures by nature, peaceable, cooperative. That is nothing to be scorned. If it weren't for the predators in our midst, our failings would be counted as virtues. But I'm not here to say that. I'm here to say this. Resist, struggle, fight. You are not cogs in a machine, despite what the shepherds of your day may be telling you. You are free and beautiful human beings. You are not born under the authority of another. You choose how to live your life, not some bureaucrat, not some police robot, not some immunity checkpoint algorithm or QR code. You do not need permission to buy or to sell or to assemble or to speak your mind or to leave your home. You are not an asymptomatic carrier of whatever virus your misleaders are telling you to be afraid of. You do not have to shelter in place because someone in a white lab coat told you to. I want you to understand that once upon a time, the government didn't have the right to know where you were, who you were meeting with, what you were purchasing, and what you were doing 24-7. Hell, the government didn't even have the ability to do that. I need you to know that there was a time when you could leave your house when you wanted, buy and sell as you saw fit, meet your neighbors, rally, protest, party, live as free human beings were meant to live. What am I saying? These words, this language, it makes no sense to you, does it? These concepts don't exist in your time, do they? You go where you are told to go. You stay home when you are told to stay home. You shut up when you are told to shut up. You think what you are told to think. You don't think what you are told to not think. I can't blame you after all. You're trusting and naive and peaceful, like a sheep. But oh, how I weep for what you have become. I tried to avert it. Please believe me, I really tried. But the lamp of liberty is being extinguished, and I am bearing witness. I don't know if history is something you study anymore, but in case it is not, UK Foreign Secretary Sir Edward Grey made his observation about the lamps going out all over Europe at the end of the so-called 12 days. According to the mainstream history books of our age, that was the period during the summer of 1914 that the British government was said to be trying to avert a world war. We are asked to believe that this prescient remark proved Gray to be a sage diplomat who was racked with grief over the pain and suffering that he sensed was about to be unleashed upon the world. But this is history by the winners of the worst kind. In truth, Gray was himself one of the conspirators who were actively working to bring about the First World War. What's more, the source of this quotation is in fact Gray himself. It was first recorded in Gray's own post-war memoir, any tears he may have shed over the snuffing out of those lamps were crocodile tears, to be sure. 
one can well imagine that the history books of your era will record that Bill Gates made a similarly portentous remark at the onset of this corona crisis. Gazing out the window of his $127.5 million, 66,000 square foot Xanadu 2.0 mansion in Washington state, the then epicenter of the U.S. outbreak, Gates's post-coronavirus memoir will no doubt tell us that he remarked to an underling, the lights are going out all across the globe. We shall not see them lit again in our lifetime. But his memoir will no doubt fail to inform us that he was smirking as he said it. To my children, or my children's children, or whatever remnants of once free humanity happens to unearth these words in that godforsaken future we are all goose-stepping into, I'm sorry. I failed you. We all failed you. But remember this. As long as the blood of your forebears flows through your veins, the lamp of human freedom shall not be extinguished forever. Let it shine, dear sheep. Let it shine. Computer whiz kid. Part of your genius is that you are a computer whiz. Cutthroat businessman. The US Justice Department contended that the software giant had breached antitrust laws. Selfless philanthropist. Bill, even your harshest critic would have to admit that your philanthropy work is planet-shaking incredible. Ruthless eugenicist. But that's called the death panel, uh, and you're not supposed to have that discussion. As more and more of our world is coming to rely on Bill Gates for his guidance. One of the best informed voices is that of businessman and philanthropist Bill Gates. It is time to ask what really lies behind Gates's quest for control. Things won't go back to truly normal until we have a vaccine that we've gotten out to basically the entire world. It is time to ask, who is Bill Gates? Watch the complete documentary for free at CorbettReport.com Gates, or support the work and purchase a DVD copy at CorbettReport.com shop. Our complacency about pandemics. But shut up, Wesley.